Hello and welcome to today's event discussing socialism or barbarism, why Rosa Luxemburg matters today. Uh, today's forum is co-hosted by the socialist media site Labour Outlook and the events platform Arise, a festival of left ideas. Um, it's part of an online series, Socialist Ideas, a series that has seen tens of thousands of you tune in for discussion on topics such as uh, Marx and Engels' relevance today, the ongoing struggle for Palestinian liberation, lessons of the Paris Commune and much more. So before we dive into our main speakers today, uh, we're going to hand over very quickly to Logan Williams from Arise Festival, who's going to talk a little bit about um, why we're organising this series, um, topics we've covered um, and how you can support this series of brilliant socialist ideas. Logan. Thank you, Sean. So as Sean said, my name's Logan Williams. I'm a Arise Festival volunteer, I'm a Labour Outlook contributor, and I'm also a NEU workplace rep and activist. I think it's fair to say for everyone who's probably on this call and is joining us from hopefully worldwide that we are living in a global crisis. We are seeing the growing issues of capitalism come to the fore again. In Britain, we're seeing the cost of living crisis, which is forcing thousands and if not hundreds of thousands into poverty. We're seeing school buildings crumble around us. We're seeing our public services fail. But at the same time, we are seeing a global drive to almost an era of permanent warfare, it seems. I can't remember a year where there hasn't been fighting in some part of the world. And we are seeing that, I think, with the issues of Palestine today. And we in Arise Festival and Labour Outlook, we want to try and grow the alternative to this. And the way we need to do that as a movement, I think, is to look to our past. We need to look not just for historical interest, radical figures and their ideas about how they try to solve issues from their time. But we have sought to try and look at how we can apply these ideas today. And we've done that so far in this fantastic Socialist Ideas series where we've looked at Hugo Chavez. We've looked at James Connolly. We've looked at the Paris Commune and their fight for democracy. And today we're going to have a look at Rosa Luxemburg. And I think this type of work is fantastic. It's something that I think has been missing this level of political education where we're seeking to bring theoretical debates from the 20th century into the 21st century and trying to apply it to give us the opportunity and the tools with which we can try and forge this alternative for us. We need to try and sow this thread between all of these struggles, whether that is in the Palestine demonstrations we saw yesterday, where we saw hundreds of thousands take to the streets worldwide and including in London, to the issues of climate change, to the issues of our pu defending our public services against more and more uh, economic cuts. We need to try and sow that thread between them. And the way we do that is through these debates. So I think this, I hope you've enjoyed them so far if you've taken part. And I hope that you continue to support these efforts to try and strengthen and give our, our organisers, our activists, these tools with which we can fight the, fight the fights we face today. So I'm not going to take up much more of your time because we've got two fantastic speakers in Paul and Helen. So please continue to support this Socialist Ideas series. And I hope that you will enjoy this meeting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Logan. And I really would encourage people that haven't done to look on the YouTube channel and to go back and watch or listen to previous um, series because they're really, really interesting. And 
they're like a good a good way of starting your morning on your walk into to work um for today's discussion though it should be noted that tomorrow january 15th um marks the anniversary of when Rosa Luxemburg was assassinated in 1919 alongside her comrade, the anti-war German Member of Parliament, Karl Liebknecht, and other socialists in Germany. Um, At that time, they were fighting for peace. They were fighting for real change, real democracy and a real revolution. Um, Rosa was one of the most brilliant minds drawn to our international socialist movement. She was an outstanding theorist and activist and understood the reinforcing link between the two. Um, This forum is going to look at the relevance of her ideas for transforming a world in crisis today. Her work tackled capitalism and socialism, globalisation and imperialism, war and peace, social struggles, trade unions, political parties, um, class, gender, race and the interconnection of humanity with our environment. At a time of permanent war and permanent economic crisis, um, there is much we can learn today. And for today's discussion, we couldn't be in better hands. The two speakers today who are going to do their presentation and sort of lead us off on this discussion are Paula Blanc and Helen Scott. So they're the co-editors of the acclaimed Rosa Luxemburg Socialism or Barbarism collection of writings. Um, They are also the co-editors of volume five of the Verso Books edition of the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg that's due to be published this April coming up um, they're also the authors of many other works contributing to socialist thought and our movement today so most recently Paula Blanc's study Lenin responding to catastrophe forging revolution which was just published um September just gone so it is now available um after our speakers um we're going to be taking questions from you so just pop them in the comment section of YouTube and I can put them to our speakers after they've presented but for now it is over to you Paul and Helen thank you Sean and uh thanks to the comrades who are uh, uh organizing this event Uh, In what follows, I will offer some brief introductory remarks about Rosa Luxemburg and her continuing relevance. Helen will then chime in on Luxemburg's relevance and then go on to examine ways that Luxemburg has been misunderstood, contrasting the distortions with the actualities of her political orientation. Finally, I will come back to comment on some of Luxemburg's key contributions as a revolutionary. In 1871, Rosa Luxemburg was born in a a Poland divided under German and Russian domination, and she played a role in the revolutionary movement of each of these countries. Her influence has been global, however, since her contributions place her within the very heart of the Marxist tradition. She became active in the socialist movement while still in her teens, soon rising into the leadership circle of Polish socialists. Luxembourg's working working class internationalism, however, caused her to move to Germany in order to play a more substantial role in the massive and influential German Social Democratic Party, the SPD. Luxembourg was an accomplished theorist, writer, orator, and educator in the movement, serving as a teacher at the prestigious school of the SPD but she was also an organizer and activist, imprisoned more than once, 
by Russian authorities in the wake of the 1905 revolutionary upsurge and by German authorities for her uncompromising opposition to the First World War. She labored to rally socialists, workers, as well as intellectuals to do what the SPD ultimately failed to do, oppose war, imperialism, and capitalism with mass struggles, mass strikes, and revolutionary action. Shortly before her death, she helped to found the German Communist Party. In January 1919, against Luxembourg's warnings, revolutionary euphoria brought some of her comrades into an ultra-left collision with a better organized, better armed, powerful enemy. In the wake of the revolt's suppression, paramilitary groups, which consisted largely of future Nazis, systematically rounded up and murdered left-wing troublemakers. Luxembourg was among the victims. Luxembourg has become especially known for her comment in a polemical analysis written in her prison cell in 1915 that humanity is at a crossroads, socialism or barbarism. Either the working class would overturn capitalism and replace it with a deeply democratic and humanistic socialist alternative, or there would be, as she put it, the collapse of all civilization, depopulation, desolation, degeneration, a great cemetery. She saw the First World War as a horrific advance in that direction. Since Luxembourg's death, the downward slide has continued. A worldwide economic depression in the 1930s, accompanied by the rise and spread of authoritarian and fascist regimes, including the Nazi creation of genocidal concentration camps such as Auschwitz, Dachau, and Buchenwald. A second world war that was even more devastating than the first. The development and use in Hiroshima and Nagasaki of nuclear weapons that destroy entire cities and hundreds of thousands of people in an instant. Then came the Cold War confrontation, peppered with pervasive violence and smaller wars killing millions, combined with an ever-present threat of humanity's annihilation through the very real possibility of thermonuclear war. Since the Cold War's end, we have seen we have been uh, increasingly faced with crescendos of violence, authoritarianism, and a seemingly never-ending succession of armed conflicts around the world. Added to this is the prevalent reality of environmental crisis and destruction, with climate change bringing droughts, floods, and hurricanes killing millions of people and devastating millions more. The global intensification of pollution and pandemics has also become part of the new normal. Such things are largely preventable. Honest scientists and critical-minded economists have shown how this can be done. But that would require a restructuring of our economy along democratic and humanistic lines. Instead, as Luxembourg foretold, the well-being of humanity is compromised by the dominant commitment to maintain capitalist profits. The outcomes of this will be increasingly catastrophic for all of us and for future generations. And in many ways, that catastrophe is already being felt 
across the world and perhaps nowhere more acutely than today by Palestinians. Um, I tend in general to avoid speculative history and I know and I'm aware of the dangers of claiming to know what one or other long dead political figure would do if they were alive today. But everything that I've learned about Luxembourg's life and work leads me to conclude with confidence that she would, if she could witness Israel's relentless genocidal assault, she would be pouring her heart and soul into the solidarity movement with Palestinian struggle for liberation. She would have been leading chants in the mass demonstrations in London and across the world yesterday. And I can say that with confidence because first she was one of the most clear-sighted opponents of colonialism in the Second International. And this opposition was grounded in economic theory and rested on a deep understanding of the disastrous human impact of dispossession and colonization. She would have, without doubt, condemned Israel's land grabs and apartheid system as settler colonialism. And second, throughout her life, she opposed militarism, famously breaking with most of the leadership of the Second International in 1914 in order to maintain a principled opposition to imperialist wars. She would be horrified by the unprecedented scale and ferocity of Israel's bombardment of Gaza. In fact, as I, as I watch images from Gaza, I can't help, and I've been thinking about this um, in, in recent months, of her description of a world at war in the Junius pamphlet, one of the, one of the best anti-war pamphlets ever written. She wrote, cities are turned into shambles, whole countries into deserts, villages into cemeteries, whole nations into beggars, churches into stables, popular rights, treaties, alliances, the holiest words and the highest authorities have been torn into scraps, shamed, dishonored, wading in blood and dripping with filth. Thus, capitalist society stands as a roaring beast, as an orgy of anarchy, as a pestilential breath, devastating culture and humanity so it appears in all its nakedness. Third, Luxembourg was, was um, subject throughout her life to anti-Semitism, both in occupied Poland and in Germany. And she and her parties consistently campaigned against the oppression of Jews. Um, she fought against anti-Semitism. They were principled opponents of anti-Semitism. And this commitment extended to all oppressed groups. Uh, she objected to the idea of a special or exclusive focus on Jewish suffering, counterposed to others. This is what she wrote to her friend Matilda Verm in February of 1917. I am just as much concerned with the poor victims on the rubber plantations of Putumayo, the blacks in, the blacks in Africa with whose corpses the Europeans play catch. They resound with me so strongly that I have no special place in my heart for the ghetto. I feel at home in the entire world, wherever there are clouds and birds and human tears. And these sentiments would put her squarely in the camp of anti-Zionist Jews today who are tirelessly calling for a ceasefire. And 
as this suggests, Luxembourg had deep ethical moorings and a keen sense of humanity and the value of all life. Uh, this, is her, this is from her 1914 article, The Proletarian Woman, which again resonates with the situation of Palestinians under occupation and siege and bombardment. She writes, here the wife of a small farmer groans, almost breaking down under the burden of life. There in German Africa in the Kalahari Desert, the bones of defenseless Herero women bleach, driven to a cruel death from hunger and thirst by German soldiers. In the high mountains of Putumayo on the other side of the ocean, unheard by the world, death screams die away. The person who wrote this would not sit silently by while the men, women and children of Palestine endure Israel's ongoing dehumanization and genocide. And finally, Luxembourg always stood up for her principles, no matter how the establishment tried to muzzle her. She spent many years in prison on charges of treason. Uh, she had the strength of will and the fortitude that are necessary today as the powerful defenders of Israel clamped down on free speech and advocacy for Palestine. Before Paul uh, talks more about Luxembourg's legacy, um, I want to just go through a few of the misconceptions surrounding her, which um, continue to be surprisingly current. Um, they're, they're, they're quite stubborn. Um, recent years, thankfully, have seen the appearance of many studies of Luxembourg, including the Verso Complete Works project that we're part of and other publications. And they're welcome because they draw on her own words and actions publications, speeches, personal correspondence, and therefore they give a more grounded portrait of who she was. And this is necessary because there's so much disinformation that has always surrounded this figure. Um, so I want to just clear away three powerful and, and um, ongoing myths uh, that, are, that are surprisingly stubborn. Firstly, that she was particularly prone to violence. Second, that she was a spontaneist. And thirdly, that she was a particular foe of her contemporary Vladimir Lenin. Okay, so she was denounced in her time by the right wing and conservative elements of social democracy as bloody Rosa. And she was depicted as exceptionally inclined towards reckless and violent modes of struggle. Now, when it comes to the right wing, this was part of a standard ruling class fear of working class self-emancipation. Because, of course, anyone who opposed the current establishment must be a terrorist. Um, and as for a socialist who's also an outspoken independent woman, a Jew, a member of the colonized Polish people, living with a disability, for most of their lives a foreigner, well, of course, they're going to be public enemy number one for the, for the ruling class. But a version of the same attack came also from within the socialist movement. And in this version, it indicated really a hostility towards revolutionaries. As the key critic of reformism in the SPD, which was the mass socialist party in Germany of the time, Luxembourg drew the ire of those who looked to change from above through elections, legislation, so-called legal union activity. Now, Luxembourg didn't 
dismiss those activities. Indeed, she dedicated much of her energy towards struggles for the right to vote, limits to the workday, workplace conditions, and so on. But she saw those struggles not only as goods in their own right, but also means towards the end of ultimately overthrowing the system. Now, the, the idea of Luxembourg's proclivity to violence persists. I've actually heard it restated in various forms in many meetings quite recently. Um, and it's the idea that she favored violent confrontation with the state over working within the system. And it's really wrong on so many levels. Um, but I think maybe the most, maybe where it stems from is an idea that she was drawn to um, direct action, guerrilla struggle and insurrection. And in fact, her, her primary vision was that the, the strength of the socialist movement lies in the power of working class people to withhold our labor and shut down the system. Um, she developed this, the theory of the mass strike out of her long experience organizing, and it was crystallized by her participation in the Russian Revolution of 1905, where she saw firsthand what happens when large numbers of working people join together and oppose their bosses and the establishment. What's consistent throughout is that as a socialist, she valued life above all else. And her letters contain just remarkable passages marveling at the ingenuity of insects when she's in a prison cell or identifying with the suffering of a buffalo. Um, she, wasn't, she wasn't a pacifist, though. She understood that the ruling class have the monopoly on violence, which they use every day to suppress workers at home and abroad. And she knew that a peaceful alternative did not exist within the current system given the inherent violence. And she also knew that the ruling class would not give up their power without armed resistance. But the political strategy she endorsed was not one of individual acts of violence, but rather of mass actions capable of bringing the system to a halt by interrupting business as usual, rather than by taking up guns. If workers stop making guns, and soldiers refused to fight for their nations, the imperialist war machine could not function. The second persistent myth about Luxembourg is that she is a spontaneist. And the basic idea here is that she believed that workers spontaneously resist oppression and that leaders should therefore stand aside and allow this mass resistance to sweep away the system and replace it with socialism. And again, this has a longer lineage, but continues to resurface often as part of a, a generalized suspicion, I think, of organization and leadership. And again, it's a real distortion of Luxembourg's record. Yes, certainly she did look to struggle from below and she did see the working class majority as the only force capable of leading revolutionary change. But she also knew that on its own, such spontaneous movements would not be sufficient to combat the state and lead to sustained and systemic change. So she spent her life building organizations from the socialist group she helped found in Poland to the Russian Socialist Party, to the German SPD, to the Spartacist League and the early Communist Party at the end of her life. She was typically active in the leadership of three different organizations simultaneously. 
Um, and this is what she wrote in the, in her 1906, The Mass Strike, to give you a sense of what she imagined that participation in leadership to, to mean. She writes, the social Democrats are the most enlightened, most class conscious vanguard of the proletariat. They cannot and dare not wait in a fatalist fashion with folded arms for the advent of the revolutionary situation. To wait for that which in every spontaneous people's movement falls from the clouds. On the contrary, they must now, as always, hasten the development of things and endeavor to accelerate events. The 1905 Russian Revolution, revolution the dress rehearsal revolution, showed her in practice that revolutionary leadership and organization are crucial because mass strikes and protests alone are not able to combat the power of the state. And this is a consistent thread throughout all the phases of her life and work. Oppressed people will always resist and an organized revolutionary leadership is essential if these struggles are to cohere into something capable of defeating the entire system. So I think this myth of, of spontaneity is connected to the third major myth I'll deal with here, and that is that she was a foe of Lenin and that the model of the vanguard party was the antithesis of all she held dear. And evidence for this is taken most often in her writings on the Russian Revolution, where she criticizes the Bolsheviks on many fronts. Now, uh, Luxembourg was an independent thinker and an outspoken critic, and this was true in her dealings with Lenin as much as with any other leader in the Second International. So, yes, she was searing in her polemics with Lenin. And so was she of the reformist leaders in, within the SPD. In fact, her criticisms were far more often directed at the reformist wing of, the so of social democracy, which she ultimately broke with than with the Bolsheviks. And despite her critique, she did call the October Russian Revolution, quote, the salvation of the honor of international socialism. So Lenin and Luxembourg are best understood together as two of the great revolutionary leaders of the era. They agreed on more than they differed, uh, and they frequently blocked together on ma major issues. And most famously, during the breakup of the Second International, when the majority of the parties abandoned anti-imperialism and endorsed World War I, she and Lenin were among the minority who opposed the war and built a revolutionary alternative. The two were allies in the revolutionary wing of the Second International and maintained mutual respect, respect throughout their lives, even when disagreeing. And that brings me to my final point before handing over to Paul. Luxembourg was first and foremost a revolutionary. And while she was truly extraordinary, she was also very much a product of the times she was living through. Both the negative, the rapid growth of imperialism, colonialism and war, uh, the brutality of rapidly developing industrial capitalism, the oppressive weight of the brutal Russian empire, but also of the positive, particularly a mass socialist movement that spanned large parts of the world and was deeply embedded in the working class. Luxembourg saw the horrors of the world she lived in and spent her life working to change it. She lived and died with the hopes of the German revolution. 
And she was part of a movement that came closer to successful world social revolution than any other in the history of capitalism. So while subsequent history has given us barbarism rather than socialism, that is not the inevitable outcome. And the legacy of those brief decades has inspired and given direction to generations of movements since, providing lessons and models that have helped to foster future organizations and change. And uh, I'll turn it over to Paul here to talk more about Luxembourg's part in this. In these concluding comments, we want to touch on three additional aspects of Luxembourg's approach that remain relevant. Uh, there are more than three, but our time is limited. So we will focus on her, uh, uh, what she says about uh, reforms and reformism, on her understanding of imperialism, and on her revolutionary internationalism. Luxembourg embraced the ideas outlined by Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, that the working class is the key to solving the problems of humanity that result from the way capitalism operates. The working class is the majority segment of the population under capitalism, providing the labor power, the ability to labor, uh, the labor power and creativity that capitalists purchase and squeeze to make their profit-making economy function. Following Marx and Engels, Luxembourg believed that the working class could organize to win the battle for democracy and of democracy, building trade unions to improve workers' situation at the workplace, building social movements to press for democratic rights and improvements in society as a whole, and building a political party that would help advance these reform struggles, but also take political power to establish a working class government that would bring a revolutionary change, the replacement of capitalism with the economic democracy of socialism. So, and then my page got stuck and I had to pause for a moment. Luxembourg agreed with Marx and Engels that reform struggles are essential to defend the rights of the working class majority in the here and now, and also to help make that majority sufficiently conscious, organized, and experienced to bring about a socialist revolution. To understand this, we need to be clear on what we mean by the word reform. It refers to an improvement within the context of the existing capitalist society. The formal position of the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD, of which she was a prominent member, was to favor reforms as a pathway to revolution. As Luxembourg explained, and here's a quote, the daily struggle for reforms for the amelioration of the condition of the workers within the framework of the existing social order and for democratic institutions offers to the social democracy the only means of engaging in the proletarian class war and working in the direction of the final goal, the conquest of political power and the suppression of wage labor. She summed it up by saying the struggle for reforms is its means, the social revolution its aim. There were some increasingly influential figures in the SPD, however, 
who argued for an entirely different strategy. Uh, favoring reforms, uh, the strategy has been termed re reformism, and it involved favoring reforms alone and forgetting about revolution. <laughs> this was advanced by the prominent SPD theoretician Edward Bernstein. The revolutionary approach of Marx, according to Bernstein, was no longer relevant to modern capitalism. This was because the trade unions and the reform efforts within the German parliament promised, he felt, the piecemeal elimination of the oppressive aspects of capitalism and a gradual evolution to socialism. This was consistent with the actual pro uh, practice of the SPD, he argued, not the old notion that the worker should take political power to inaugurate a revolutionary transition. Luxembourg was the strongest critic of reformism in the SPD. She rejected Bernstein's method of analysis as if one could select types of social change, either a revolutionary or a reformist approach from the counter of history, just as one chooses hot or cold sausages. Mm -hmm. Bernstein misunderstood the very nature of capitalism, she argued. Central to the capitalist economy was maximizing profits for the capitalist minority through a relentless exploitation of the working class majority. This could not be reformed out of existence. Luxembourg's analysis throws light on her understanding of imperialism. She saw capitalism as an expansive system driven by the dynamic of capital accumulation. Capital in the form of money, is invested in commodities in the form of raw materials and tools and labor power. By squeezing the actual labor out of the workers' labor power, this is transformed into capital in the form of new commodities thereby produced, whose increased value is realized through their sale for more money than was originally invested. That's capitalism. But the dynamics of the system uh, uh, oh, another aspect of it is that uh, this increased capital out of which the capitalist extracts his profits, uh, uh, some of it has to be used to further the process. The dy dynamics of the system drive the capitalist to invest more capital for the purpose of achieving ever greater capital accumulation. Inseparable from this, the quality of life for more and more workers was undermined with the ongoing degradation of the labor process and ceaseless efforts to enhance profits at the expense of working class living standards, all punctuated by periodic economic depressions. Gains made by workers in reform struggles would later be eroded by the natural functioning of the capitalist economy. This voracious capital accumulation process was also uh, compelled by its very nature to expand over the face of the earth. Although the word commonly used today is globalization, in Luxembourg's time, it was called imperialism. She explained the means of production and labor power of these formations in non-capitalist regions of the world, as well as their demand for the capitalist surplus product, are indispensable to capitalism itself. 
in order to wrest these means of production and this labor power from these formations and to convert them into purchasers of its commodities, capitalism strives purposefully to annihilate them as independent social structures. The destructive impact of all this on the cultures of the world's peoples was emphasized by Luxembourg as by no other Marxist theorist of her time. The ravenous greed, the voracious appetite for accumulation, the very essence of which is to take advantage of each new political and economic conjuncture with no thought for tomorrow, precludes any appreciation of the value of the works of economic infrastructure that have been left by previous civilizations. Competition among various capitalist powers to achieve such extensive conquests resulted in a dramatic expansion of militarism, aggressively nationalist ideologies, and intensifying rivalries around who would control and profit from the increasing sectors of the global economy. Which and this culminated in a devastating global war. Luxembourg's revolutionary internationalist response, echoing the Communist Manifesto, was to call on workers of all countries to unite in opposing the First World War, in opposing imperialism, and in fighting to replace capitalism with socialism. The workers of various countries have much more in common with each other than with the capitalists who exploit them. Another key aspect of Luxembourg's internationalism is that capitalism as a world economy can only be overcome on a global scale. This relates to her critical analysis of Russia's 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. The whole calculation behind the Russian fight for freedom is based on the tacit presumption that the revolution in Russia ought to become the signal for the revolutionary rising of the proletariat in the West, she noted. If that failed to happen, even the greatest energy and the greatest sacrifices of the proletariat in a single country must inevitably become tangled in a maze of contradictions and blunders. While critically analyzing this tangled maze, she made common cause with Lenin and the Bolsheviks in the final weeks before her death, as she labored to make a socialist revolution in Germany. If Luxembourg and her comrades had been successful in this, perhaps neither Hitlerism nor Stalinism, as we know them today, would ever have come into being. There is much to learn from this remarkable comrade. Both Helen and I have been able to offer only an initial taste of what she offers. We hope listeners and viewers will be moved to engage with her thought through her writings, and we look forward to our discussion with you today. Thank you so much, Paul and Helen. I thought that was really, really brilliant. And I think you say it's an initial taste, but I think you did an excellent job of sort of giving uh, you know, a taste of the scale and scope of her writings and her contribution. So I think 
I think that was a great a great place to st- start our questions. Um, and I hope people have been also taking note of like the links in the chat, you know, which are linking to sort of different bits of uh, work if you do want to engage with the writings after this discussion. Um, there are over 200 of you tuning in live today. So I think that's really brilliant for a Sunday, a Sunday listen. Um, and we've got people from different parts of London, um, but also Somerset, Manchester, um, Harrow, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Preston, but also in Ireland, um, Sardinia and Chicago and many more. So I think that's really great as well. Um, I'm going to take like uh, advantage of the fact we've got so many of you live and just also say like, uh, if you if any of you can make little donations to keeping this series going, that would be really, really great. Uh, and you know donate what you can we know it's a really difficult time at the moment um but i'm gonna just do the first round of questions now to paul and helen um and also i think this first question actually links to what you were talking about helen which is those sort of myths and distortions which about rosa which are like remarkably stubborn uh, and i've encountered them a lot as well um so the first question um from Sam is in Germany Rosa Luxemburg is still treated as a politically acceptable figure with roads named after her in Berlin for example this is unlike say Lenin who the corporate media treats with infamy what do you think the reason for that difference is and I guess one of the things in my head is always that because there is that difference I think some people just go oh she couldn't have been that great like <laughs> because there are roads named after in Berlin <laughs> it's an odd basis but I do think people make those snap judgments sometimes um and then uh, another question which is why do you think the genius pamphlet is often overlooked in the contemporary socialist movement um so hand those questions over to you both first of all I don't know who wants to go first or one of you just jump in and then the other jump in after Helen yeah, why don't I start at least with the with the uh, the question of um, the uh, sort of celebration, the official celebration of Luxembourg and the demonization of Lenin, which I think is is a fascinating one, and I've thought about it a lot. And I, I was in Berlin for the um, in in two thousand nineteen, um, you know, where there was a lot of activity around um, her. The, the death, you know, not, not celebrating her death, but celebrating Luxembourg on the anniversary of her murder. And I was really struck by that. And also by the fact that there are, um, you know, train stations named after her and um, streets named after her. And she's, you know, mostly um, treated as this wonderful figure of peace and compassion. Uh, there's a lot of sexism, you know, you have to say, because you, you always get the the juxtaposition of the kind of like the hard, ruthless intellect Lenin and the soft, caring, democratic loves Rosa. Yet yeah, she gets called Rosa. So there's there's that going on. Um, but also it, it's something to do with the way that she's been uh, taken out of the Russian Revolution and separated from the Bolsheviks. And that's what's seen as the big threat to the system, right? Is a moment where, albeit only for a short time, our side was successful. You know, there, there was a victory. The Bolsheviks had a victory, 
And um, Lenin becomes the kind of demonized symbol of, of that. And Luxembourg is, is removed from that history and, and seen as a sort of alternative. And that's why I think that they're played off against each other so much because she's, she's played off as, a, as you know, against the threat rather than seeing her as, as part of the threat. Um, the other thing that, that struck me when I was in Berlin is that in the, the big museum um, that sort of tells the history of the German revolution, there she's demonized. Um, I was stunned mm. by the way that the, the Spartacus uprising was depicted as, you know, she, she really is depicted as, as one of the crazed, um, violent terrorists, you know, that, that thankfully that was um, taken care of and then democracy was able to resume. So it, there are moments where that cele celebration of this sanitized version of Luxembourg doesn't work uh, because the reality of her situation in history needs to be kind of attacked from a different direction. But there's, there's more that could be said about it, but I think that those are some of the, the reasons. Paul, do you want to talk about the Junius pamphlet? Sure. One thing uh, with the Junius pamphlet is it, it contains the formulation, which is worldwide now, socialism or barbarism. So in that sense, it, it has a, a resonance. But I think at the same time, uh, it, it's correct to say that it is often overlooked. It's uh, uh, not uh, on the same scale as uh, many other writings. Uh, it, actually, if when we take a look at uh, English uh, translations of Luxembourg, um, there's very little, There's all, and, and discussions of Luxembourg, there's very little in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, uh, the 1950s uh, in English. Uh, there are a few bits and pieces. Uh, comrades in uh, Sri Lanka or Ceylon uh, put out some of her stuff in little pamphlets that were circulated by, you know, uh, dissident uh, uh, communist and Trotskyist and socialist groups, but not the the massive collections of, you know, the the works of Lenin. Uh, with introductions by Comrade Stalin explaining how you're supposed to understand Lenin. And in point of fact, uh, Stalin um, dismissed Luxembourg. I mean, she was uh, a founder of the Communist Party in Germany and therefore a useful martyr. But in terms of her actual ideas, there wasn't an engagement. They were too uh, threatening and challenging to the bureaucratic dictatorships that had formed uh, under the, uh, the name of communism the Stalinist version of communism. Uh, so uh, there's that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, I mean, up and uh, when I was, when I was your age, uh, there were a few collections of some of Rosa Luxemburg's key pamphlets and, 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 and books, but most of it was not available to English speakers. That's one of the reasons why we're now working to provide the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg, because there's so much there now. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, the Stalinist version of communism has uh, proved uh, for many people not to be a way forward. 
uh, social democratic reformism is proving not to be a way forward, and people are looking for alternatives. Uh, and uh, uh, Luxembourg is largely unknown, but becoming more and more known. Uh, and it's uh, our responsibility to help share those ideas and to engage with them ourselves, because there's stuff in her uh, thinking, in her writing, that's useful for us. It can be valuable for us. And I think more and more people will become, uh, will come to see that. Yeah, and I think that kind of greater availability of her writing and the greater prominence being put on her in recent years and greater studying her, you know, it has been really, really noticeable, I think, in recent years. Um, the next sort of couple of questions I feel like could go as big or as small as you want. They're quite, they touch on quite sort of broader debates happening. So firstly, um, can you outline whether Rose's ideas around the mass strike are still relevant in the advanced economies today in light of the changes in structure of economies, um, e.g. much more fragmented labour market? I feel like that's a, you know, that is a question being debated a lot um, at the moment. How do you how do you organise workers in this more difficult economy? Um sort of link to this from Mick Morgan on YouTube. Can you comment on the current state of class consciousness today? I feel as well that could be quite a big question. Um <laughs> we may not have time to solve today, Mick, I'm afraid. Um and then final question this round. Um, how are Rosa's ideas on the nature of bureaucracy in the trade union, labour and socialist movements still relevant today? I completely understand if you both want to take 10 seconds to think about your answers <laughs> to those to those massive issues. <laughs> Who wants to go first? <laughs> I'll take a shot at the first question to, to begin with, um, and the first thing I, I would say is just mass strikes keep happening. You know, there that today there's not not been a time in in recent years that we haven't seen mass strikes that that some you know that that tend to make an impact. They tend to have an impact. So even I mean, there's the reorganization of of capitalism, but it hasn't changed the reality that labor still has the power to shut down systems and you know capitalism keeps trying to find ways to um avoid that but they can't actually in, in unless they find a way to just well maybe you know this is why all of the debates about around ai are really significant because but still somebody has to create the ai you know like there have to be workers and as long as that's the case um there is the capacity for workers to combine and you know we found that different workers can do that in really creative ways and you think about organizing at Starbucks, you know, I mean, start talk about fragmentation, you have like these tiny little um, coffee shops all over the world. But Starbucks workers have found ways to communicate and coordinate actions. So even in the most unlikely areas, the possibility of mass strikes continues. Paul, I'll hand it over to you. <laughs> Fine. 
Thanks. <laughs> uh, no, these are great questions, and we need several more hours to unpack them. Uh, but let's let's start talking about them now, because the discussions and the thinking is going to be taking place beyond simply this forum. So these are uh, excellent questions. One uh, question that uh, uh, arises uh, on this this first one is uh, workers. What do you mean workers? Who are workers? Who are work? What is the working class? Well, the working class is most of us in Britain and in the U.S., most of us, uh, those of us who sell our ability to work for a paycheck, regardless of the occupation, uh, are part of the working class. We may not think of ourselves that way, but that's what we are. And I am now a retired worker. Um, and there are unemployed workers, and there are family members who aren't working uh, at jobs who are dependent on the paycheck of the breadwinner, whoever that might be in the family. So that the working class is a lot of us, and it's not just in this particular shop or this particular factory or so forth. It's It, it goes beyond that. That's one question. That's one issue. And then uh, Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter upsurge, the Occupy upsurge, in this sense, they were working class upsurges, and they were similar uh, to the kind of thing that Luxembourg talks about in the mass strike. During the Vietnam War in the United States, there was a mass strike in Pittsburgh and across the country when Nixon invaded Cambodia. There was a massive spontaneous upsurge, you know, that shook the country. And there have been various mass actions, mass upsurges, mass strikes like this uh, in our experience, the Arab Spring, uh, so-called Arab Spring, et cetera, that we can add more and more and more to understand that uh, this phenomenon, that if you actually read what she's talking about, she's not talking about the dynamics and specifics in this or that workplace among this or that group of uh, occupation of workers. She's talking about something that transcends that and goes beyond that. Uh, and that is very relevant. Uh, uh, and uh, she argues that it's out of these mass upsurges, these mass strikes that then it is possible for workers in different sectors or they're, they're, they're pushed in the direction of actually organizing when it seemed impossible beforehand. So I think this is a, a very relevant a reality in our own time and has been when we look at our history. Uh, uh, it's been relevant all along. This relates in a certain way to the current state of class consciousness today which I would argue, I mean, it's, it's possible to just look at the downside and you get very depressed, but things are fluid and they have been fluid for a long time. And Luxembourg, it, it was fluid in Luxembourg's time. She was in prison, you know, with, uh, uh, for opposing a war that initially was very popular among German working people, World War I. You know, they they were, yay, you know, let's uh, let's uh, let's go and uh, do this wonderful thing. World War One uh, led on by their socialist uh, reform leaders. Uh, uh, 
And one of her friends wrote to her and said, you know, well, look at the state of class consciousness today, you know, I mean, forget about this revolutionary stuff. And she made the point then it's very fluid. It's very fluid. She uh, and fluid in the sense of the ocean, the seas, the currents underneath the the uh, placid surface and uh, talked about uh, ocean mariners would be very poor at trying to figure things out if they're just judging things on the surface. They have to be looking at various other dynamics and that. Uh, uh, workers, working class people, their consciousness at a certain point can be seemingly very conservative or reactionary and then shift dramatically. Uh, uh, and and as she she had an awareness of that. And we have to have an awareness of that. And what we do and fail to do uh, uh, engaging with the complexities around us will have an impact on that. And there may be a buildup that you can't see under the surface that then will explode. Uh, so uh, current state of class consciousness, enough said about that because I've run out of time. Uh, <laughs> and relevance of uh, uh, the, uh, her views on the nature of bureaucracy, I think are brilliant. Uh, and uh, she identifies dynamics that I have seen over the years in the labor movement, in social movements, and so forth. Uh, those are real. They have to be looked at. It's worth discussing them. We don't have enough time to discuss it now, but she's onto something. She is one of the first uh, Marxists to begin to develop uh, an analysis of that as a factor in things. Uh, there's more to be said, but let's move on. Thank you. And I think, you know, just picking up your comment about not just looking at the downsides of everything that's going on at the moment. When we talk about class consciousness, I think one of the things that's really happened in in Britain, so one of my formative political experiences was opposing the war in Iraq, when the word imperialism, which hadn't been part of like mainstream political discourse, was again. And obviously with the rise in support for Jeremy Corbyn, you know, you now have socialism being openly talked about, you know, and fine people have different interpretations of it and stuff. But, you know, we saw the rise of Chavez and 21st century socialism being talked about I mean, in the global south. But in Britain, it hadn't really been until it became repopularized as a mass mainstream term over the past few years. And that's incredibly optimistic, I think. So points of hope and optimism and collective action at a time of sliding into barbarism is sort of the theme of the last little set of questions which we've had i think are are really you know are really really good questions um so we've got Iva from norway on youtube um i wonder how we can relate rhoda to the piecework and the fight against nuclear weapons today i think paul you said in your first set of comments about you know rosa's predictions sort of came true as we invented the nuclear bomb um from facebook does climate catastrophe make the idea of socialism or barbarism more concrete than ever um before um and an arsenal fan on youtube how can luxembourg's life and ideas help us understand the link between the struggles at home and abroad today and you know and one of the things you know people will have seen the pictures of the palestine demo in london and other bits of the world uh yesterday but you know, I think it's incredible that like some of the biggest demonstrations in London have been people opposing the killing 
of Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So there is always that link between home abroad, you know, be- people's basic humanity comes out in these things. So um, sort of comments really from you both on those three questions. To begin with the um, at home and abroad question, I was actually thinking about that in terms of the last group of questions too uh, about class consciousness, because it has been the the one silver lining, the one bright spark in a really bleak moment in history to see the outpouring of humanity in solidarity with Palestinians, including in the UK, you know, and in the US, the two nations that are most solidly officially behind Israel that are making this um, assault possible. Um, and, and you know, in both the UK and in the US, it's blanket ideology pro-Israel, demonizing Palestinians as being terrorists, demonizing Palestinians as being other, you know, the ultimate other. Um, and despite all of that, despite our entire establishments telling us this is legitimate, you know, it's actually wrong to identify with the victims, you know, in, in, in spite of this blanket propaganda, millions of people across the world have continued to protest and, you know, put their bodies in the streets saying, no, I cannot watch this happening. And that to me is the, the strongest example of class consciousness because in the end the what nationalism nationalism is the linchpin of capitalism because it 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 teaches us it tells us that we should identify with our country against ordinary people in other countries like that isn't that the the number one ideology of capitalism or at least it's it's one of the most important and we've seen on a mass scale people refusing that ideology and saying, no, I identify with my brothers and sisters and siblings who are being tortured, who are being starved, who are not allowed water, who whose hospitals are being bombed, whose schools are being bombed. Ordinary people, regular people identify with that. And... Um, you can't that no amount of ideology can stop us from things from seeing that so it seems to me that that um you know that's fundamentally part of what luxembourg saw and what she worked towards her entire life was internationalism and working class international solidarity so for me the 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 Palestine solidarity moment is one of the clearest examples of how that is a reality right now and, and one that we have a responsibility to continue to build you know, d- despite all of the attacks that come our way. I think that uh, what Helen said uh, addresses particularly the first and the second and the, the first and the third 
uh, question that was posed in this uh, latest cluster. And I want to say uh, briefly something on the uh, the second. Uh, I'm assuming that we're running out of time. We don't have the additional hour that I would like to have to uh, expand on everything. Uh, so I'm going to be very succinct. Um, the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe that is unfolding and will unfold. And I'm old. Uh, it's moving faster than I thought. So before I check out, I'm going to see more bad things. And then there are my children and my grandchildren and future generations who are uh, being impacted by this and will be. Uh, and this is stuff that's preventable. We we have the data to show where is it coming from. It's it's, it's man-made uh, and it's coming largely, not totally, but largely from the fossil fuel industries. It's coming from the functioning of capitalism. It, it's too costly. It will be too costly to support things like a genuine Green New Deal, not a phony Green New Deal, but a genuine Green New Deal where there is economic restructuring providing decent health care and jobs and education and every and housing and so forth for everyone while restructuring the economy so that it's not poisoning and killing all of us and, and uh, uh, warming the the earth uh, this can be done this must be done it, it but it it it's too costly for the capitalists for the capitalist economy for the governments that are dependent on the support of the capitalists and so it's not happening it hasn't been happening um, and more and more people are feeling it, are aware of it, and there is a struggle. There must be a struggle to put people before profits, and that's going to make more and more sense to more and more people as things get worse and worse and worse with the climate. Hopefully, there will be enough time to save more lives uh, but uh, this is a life and death issue that humanity is say we are we are at a crossroads now. Uh, and so uh, socialism is more concrete, actual socialism, real socialism, uh, not phony socialism, uh, not reforms in the name of socialism. But you keep the capitalist economy functioning. That's not going to work. I think more and more people are going to realize that. And that's what Luxembourg is all about is pointing to those kinds of dynamics and pointing to the crossroads decision that uh, that we have to make. So in any event, that's my response, uh, my short response to that second uh, question. Thank you. I'm going to invite you both to make some concluding remarks or to add any sort of final points that you want to. Um, before I do that, I'm just going to remind the audience that um, if you have enjoyed today and you are able to, then please do make a donation so we can keep arranging events like this because I think they are completely worthwhile and incredibly useful um, and interesting and worthwhile discussions to be having. Um, I hope to see some of you in person at the Arise Day School in uh, London in February and I would also encourage you all to make sure that you keep an eye out for future online socialist ideas sessions keep listening subscribe to the youtube channel and the spotify um concluding remarks any final thoughts that either of you would like to add i hand over to you both 
I would be very pleased if Helen made the concluding remarks. What, all of them? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be honored. Um, I, I do first want to thank um, you, Sean, and um, Labor Outlook, and everybody who organized this, and everybody who showed up. And um, it's been uh, very, you know, it's, 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 a source of inspiration to see what you're doing. Um, and, um, and I feel much solidarity with you all. Um, and I think that in these times in particular, it is so important to be engaged in collective struggle and to be working with comrades who can build our confidence and our sense of what we're trying to achieve and to refuse the lies that were being told and to continue to have the the vision, the, the deeply humanitarian and ethical vision that is our legacy from Luxembourg. Um, so thank you all. And I, I think that the one the one last thing that I would stress is Luxembourg had an incredible ability to, she was a dialectical thinker. You know, every, this is this is perhaps her her most um, lasting legacy to us. She knew how to hold together contradictions at this, you know, and to simultaneously see contradictory things to put them together. She was brilliant in in every part of her work. Um, And that also enabled her to refuse and dismantle the seeming polarities that we are dealt with you know like capitalism makes everything black and white and good and evil and um, male female you know we have all of these binaries and it's a it's a very rigid way of thinking and Luxembourg was very good at dismantling those binaries Um, and one of the perhaps the most important way that she area in which she did that was in showing that there isn't a rigid division between economic and political struggles. She put those two together. And I think much of the conversation that we've had today has been about exactly that. Um, Palestine is a political issue, um, but it's also an economic issue. And the I just stressed the incredible evidence of class consciousness in the global outpouring of solidarity with Palestinians that we're seeing in order to convert that into something that can actually challenge Israel's power, they have to become economic struggles. And there are groups like I'm in a group in the US called Labor for Palestine. Um, and the, the organization is taking that lesson and saying, workers make ammunitions to Israel, a possibility, a reality. But if workers say, I'm not going to participate in making those weapons or shipping those weapons, that's where that's where we have the actual power to change the overall um, balance of power. Um, and that has been happening, right? In the UK, people have refused to load weapons that are heading to Israel. In the US, they have. In Spain... Canada, India, Belgium. I'm sure I I know that there are other places too. Um, But I think that's one of the things we can do as conscious socialists 
is bring the struggles that are on the streets into our workplaces and um, remember the lessons from history that Luxembourg drew out so clearly, particularly in the mass strike, that the political becomes the economic and the economic becomes political. And we mustn't let those two things be kept apart. So I think that that's the, 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 my, final, um, uh, my final take for now. Um, but again, thank you all for taking part of your Sunday to uh, remember and honor Rosa Luxemburg. Thank you very much and thank you to everyone who's joined us today.